This is Soccer Better, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Between the two of us, we have way too many years of graduate education to be helpful. We decided to journey into the world of critical thinking and the analytical side of all things soccer. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Liz, we're back. Episode three of season two of Soccer Better. Are you ready? Um, no. But only because <laughs> I think that this article just was very rambly. And so you're going to get a lot of sarcasm. So I, I mean, I'm ready to be sarcastic any day, but I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for the actual episode. Are you ready? I, I mean, you know, it's been a long week or so. And so, you know, I'm ready though. I took some notes as always. And here I am. I have some kind of opinion about this. So why don't we do a brief introduction. Today's, uh, or this episode's article is entitled, Defense or Attack? Can Soccer Clubs Help Tackle Social Exclusion? So, so far this season, our two articles that we've done previously have been, you know, more broadly focused on sports. So the one from episode two was about kind of high school sports in general, Um, Episode one focused on uh, college football and college basketball. And now we're diving into the soccer. So I at least was excited about that. Yes, soccer is awesome. And soccer's back for (laughs) us. Like our team's playing in this weird pandemic time. So it's all very exciting. Yes, yes. At the time of recording, our team is playing. Who knows what will happen by the time this gets published. So anyway, um, so this article was by uh, Philip Holden and Nick Wild. Uh, it came out in 2004, which I have had to remind myself was 16 years ago. Um, I know. I feel like, oh, 2004, it wasn't that long ago. And then, you know, I did the math. I was like, oh, 16 years. So some of the references and some of the things are a little bit dated. But I think for me, uh, it was really interesting reading this um, and thinking about what has happened since the publication of this paper. So this paper was um, presented at the ISTR 6th International Conference uh, in Toronto, Canada. And did I look up what ISTR stands for? I absolutely did not. So I have no idea. Uh, you can look it up. Um, <laughs> we're, we're now to the point where we give you homework. Welcome right, to exactly. Soccer Better. <laughs> Welcome to Soccer Better, where you get homework. Um, and so what it's really talking about is our efforts by um, Premier League clubs and specifically thinking about the Football Association and in the UK um, and their efforts to address social exclusion using uh, soccer interventions. So why don't we just think like broad strokes here, Liz, what were some of your just initial overall thoughts about this article? Um, These two gentlemen need to learn how to focus. (laughs) (laughs) It was my, my broadest stroke. Um, these two gentlemen obviously want to be part of a hooligan culture uh, to some extent. I'm not sure to what extent, like they were very complimentary and very, uh, divisive. I don't know. They made fun of it too. So, um, but they did have some really good points about how you have to make, to make this work. You have to make it appeal to 
a broad audience, not just a broad audience, but every sector of that broad audience. So if you're going to use soccer to attack uh, social exclusion, then you have to find something that appeals to the owners, to the managers, to the coaches, to the players, to the communities, to the parents, and to the kids. Like you have, you can't one size fits all it. Um, and I thought that was really, um, it was really observant of them that you're not going to get total buy-in with a single PowerPoint. What you're going to do is you're going to start somewhere and you're probably going to have to start small. And then once you want to expand that, you're going to have to make a whole new presentation. But once you've gotten all of those groups to buy in, hopefully it's easier next time. Yeah, no. And I think that was, I mean, and, and we'll get into this a bit later, but I think that was a really interesting point right that there are so many stakeholders there are so many groups of people who are invested in different ways in different different capacities right to seeing the reduction of social exclusion to promote social inclusion um and so it was really interesting so like how do you create and develop a program that really meets the needs of all these different groups and the reality reality is you really can't um, you know, there isn't kind of like one magical program that really meets all these needs. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was a really good point. I also talk about rambling and kind of being all over the place. I, you know, as a researcher, as someone in academia, love me some theory. I really do. I love theory. I love just like sitting and thinking about like, why does the world work in the way that it does and what, you know, and hypothesizing about why the different, right? Love theory could talk about, you know, the theories that I use in my work for hours and hours and hours. And I won't bore you with that. But reading this, so, you know, they started out, they're like, they're like, oh, we're going to be using some theories here. Like we'll use Bordeaux and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The way that they present the theory, <laughs> you can't follow what they're actually trying no. to say. Right. I, was, I mean, <laughs> they took, they took a day's worth of conversation, gave you half of a sentence, a piece of a quote, and then winked at you and walked away and right. went to their next theory. And I was like, hey guys, what? Oh, no, we're not going to. Okay, cool. No, that's cool. I don't need I don't need to know anything about that. I don't I don't need to believe you or trust you or agree or disagree with you. Like I I will just absorb that and promptly forget it because I'm not sure what you meant. Right, exactly. And I think I mean, to be fair, this is something that I am learning is how to um, communicate and take the reader on a journey with you. Right. You have to start from square one. You can't just assume that everyone it has the same level of expertise in the theory that you do. Um, and, and this is, I had a conversation with my mentor last week about adapting my writing to making sure I was, you know, starting at square one, right? So like, I totally get it. But also I was like, this is infuriating because who read this paper and said, oh yes, it's okay for you to have your fragmented rambling thoughts. I mean, maybe they had a really, really convincing presentation. And so the paper was an afterthought. I mean, I, and that could be it. Do you know what I mean? Like they were at a conference, they were getting up there and talking and maybe they were really good at answering questions. And this paper was just uh, shoehorned in as a way to say, yeah, they wrote a paper, so they're allowed to present at the conference. That has to happen, right? Like if you have someone really adept at presenting, maybe. 
I don't know. Sure. <laughs> what do anyway. you think? Well, I, I don't know. I think we should move on to something else. I um, We should we, be nicer is what she's saying, guys. And by yeah. <laughs> we, she means me. <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, um, so one of the things I think that, like, stuck out to me. Um, so, right, they, like, lay out this whole theoretical um, and kind of cultural perspective on soccer as a sport to support their argument of can you use soccer to address the issue of social exclusion. And one of the things that I thought was interesting um, was this idea of soccer being um, working class versus like an upper class sport um, or activity, um, which I thought was really interesting because I know things that we have talked about, I'm not sure that we've talked about it on the podcast, but I know, you know, we've talked about it uh, when we've been having other conversations, Liz, is this idea of pay to play in the U.S., right? Yeah. That like a lot of youth soccer, a lot of youth sports, period, but a lot of youth soccer in the U.S., especially elite levels of soccer, requires parents to shell out a lot of money in order for their kids to participate. Um, and so I thought that was, and again, this was published in 2004, but um, I thought that was really interesting, this idea that from their perspective, right, soccer is a working class activity um, or like recreational or social activity versus, you know, like going to the opera or going to the ballet um, or, you know, museum or something. Uh, and so I like made a comment. I was like, is it an elite activity? Is it like an upper class activity? And I don't know. What do you think? I think it really can be um, here. And I think it. I'm, commentators have talked a lot about how that's to our detriment. So if you're not playing street soccer, if you're not learning anything interesting, if you're not competing against a wide variety of people, and all you're doing is playing against those people who are in your club who have paid thousands of dollars to be part of that youth club, you're not learning variety. So, I mean, I can definitely see where it is... Uh, very elitist in this in this area um another thing that was brought out is how in i thought this was a strange dichotomy okay so in the united states and this was especially true when i was going to school you were if you played soccer you were a wuss and not only that we called you worse things because we were young and dumb and mean and it was very much anti-masculine but if you think about all the commentation that you've heard about U.S. soccer, MLS, let's just do MLS versus EPL, they talk about how aggressive our players are and how rough they are and how much harder the tackles are. So did MLS become so aggressive and rough because the players who made it through our systems had been picked on for so long that they turned into bullies on the soccer field? And I was like, wow, now I want to talk about that. Is this in this paper? Guys, it's not, but maybe we can get another <laughs> paper written because I'm very curious if that is part of why uh, the U.S. traditionally um, is thought of as a much more hard-hitting, you know, uh, tackles that probably should probably would be yellow or, or red in some of the other leagues, and it's not as focused on finesse. And if you want finesse and you want some of that stuff, um, you are either an exception or you go to a different league. So yeah. um, I thought that was another thing that they brought up that was very interesting to think about 
how that has progressed in soccer. Yeah, no, I agree. I thought that was interesting because on the very next page, they talk about how soccer is controlled aggression, which um, I thought that was like very um, interesting. This like idea that, um, right, like that, uh, that there's like all this like pent up like frustration and violence and and soccer is like your way of of making it controlled um anyway i just thought it you know and they again brought up the hooliganism which you talked about yes um, at the beginning are, are you joining in peacefully or um are you for the violent aggression under the flag of your team and i was like guys you are so obsessed like i put a comment why is he so obsessed with hooligans um, he like later they talk about how if you are part of the supporter culture, which he never calls a supporter culture, he only calls it hooliganism like every time, because heaven forbid, you know, there are people who aren't hooligans who support soccer. But uh, if you are part of one of these hooligan groups, then you have found uh, th- this camaraderie and you found financial support and emotional support. And so it is just like being on the team to some extent. And we need to take that into consideration if we're going to get, you know, buy-in from the greater community. And and I think maybe he meant that if you, you know, got their buy-in, then you would help tackle social exclusion. And maybe you could get the hooligans to be less exclusive as well. We never say that, but I, I think that uh, part of his paper is acknowledging that the supporters have a role in preventing this exclusion yeah i think one of the the other interesting things that they talk about and i should mention let's see the paper is like 16 pages long and i think for like eight or nine of the pages they talk about the theory supporting their argument so um that's that's why we're talking about a lot of these like conceptual things because that's what they spend most of the paper doing um but one of the things that i thought was like super interesting was this um, the two approaches that people take to soccer, um, this task-oriented approach and this ego-oriented approach. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. I had never heard that before either. So it's this idea, um, and I believe it was uh, presented, first introduced by, in 2002, I believe, by Carr and Wingand, um, Wagans, maybe. Uh, anyway, uh, but this idea that um, approaching sport with a task-oriented um, approach is really this idea based on improvement and really developing skills, um, and an ego-oriented approach is really focused on winning, and so taking whatever you can do to win. And what I found was interesting in their discussion of these two approaches is that they're not inversely related, meaning just if you tend just because you like tend to uh, have more of a task oriented approach doesn't mean you don't have any um, ego oriented approach Um, which I thought that was really interesting in their discussion of this and so then I'm like oh okay Um, and kind of connecting this to something that they said at the very beginning of the article was this idea that just because soccer exists at the EPL level, the, you know, and then the lower leagues. So like the top leagues in England, the lower leagues in England, but then you have, um, 
amateur leagues, you have youth leagues, you have like the little itty bitty kids who run around with their t-shirts like the whole way down to their ankles, you know, in the in the little crowd Bumble, running around. Bumblebee soccer. Yes, Bumblebee soccer. Um, what they were saying is, is that like the soccer is not comparable in the sense that like the rules aren't the same. Like the rules vary across that. And I would I would think, right, and I think we know, right, like these two approaches also vary at the different levels. And they not only vary at the different levels, right, at your bumblebee level, you're really task oriented and you're really trying to like get the little kids to stand in their positions and pass the ball or even kick, kick the ball. I don't know. You know, God bless the day that I am there in my life as a, as a parent. But, um, I, I also wonder, like, then how, you know, we all have heard the stories or seen the things of the youth parents who are so ego-oriented, right? They're like, win, win, win. They're screaming. You know, I know in, in a previous um, ep- episode, we, I believe in season one, right, we talked about female referees, right? And we talked about this idea that, female referees especially when they're officiating at the youth levels tend to get yelled at more by parents and by coaches right and so then i was thinking about how all of this connects to the two approaches um what were your thoughts kind of about the two approaches so once they got to the two approaches and then they started talking about the epl team that was unnamed that has a lot of involvement in their community and has done things both to get more money from the government and uh, just on their own they've done more things like those two things kind of started to mesh so they were talking about how you know even if you have a kid who shows up to some of these uh, local social social events that are put on by a team he may be very ego driven and so he's there to show off because everyone assumes that the club is there and they're watching you and you're going to get you're going to sign this you know million dollar contract and you're going to do all of these things but the research that they had, you know, followed these kids through was like after a couple of weeks, they weren't ego driven. They were task driven because they were on these teams with other kids. And in this case, it was kids who were they were trying to um, make sure they didn't get in further trouble. So it was kids who had been in trouble with the law, kids that were having problems in the classroom. They were given this extra opportunity to work with an EPL club to some extent. And part of it was study oriented. But these kids all of a sudden were working together. Um, and so they saw a lot of collaboration between the kids and saw them become a bit more task oriented. And it wasn't all about what can I do on the field to show off? What can I do on the field to get noticed? They were playing the game. They were playing soccer and they were having a, a totally different experience than they may have had otherwise if they were just there for like a tryout. So I thought it was, by the time they got to that, I was super interested in what it meant to be ego versus task oriented and how those two things could mesh. Because if you're on a team you or you're supporting a team or you're the parent of someone on a team, you want to see them win. But at the same time, like you want to see some of these tasks being accomplished, you know, development uh, to different degrees, depending on your age and the play level that you're at and development of your group. Like I want to see the Steel Army develop. So uh, it was nice to see that there's there's some research and there's some takeaways from this that I think could be implemented 
uh, at our local level to make soccer better. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it was, yeah, it was interesting to read. And again, right. This is like 2004. This is before I started paying attention to the premier league. Um, and it sounds like this was like very much towards the beginning of the, of at least more recent efforts by the government to really use soccer as, um, a, a mechanism for improving social inclusion, um, especially for the youth. Um, and, and that was really interesting to me because I think about, you know, current day, uh, and in recent years. So I follow Brighton and Hove Albion and they have what's called Brighton in the community, which is their, um, efforts to promote social inclusion through sports. And so, um, you know, they have their, like the top tier men's team who is staying up for another season. Okay. Anyway, um, (laughs) I just had to like get that in there. Yay. Um, so they have their, you know, they have their top men's team, they have their women's team, they have their academies. Um, and then kind of separate from that is Brighton in the community, which, um, has different uh, soccer teams for di- folks with different levels of, of ability. Um, so they have a team for folks with developmental disabilities. They have like an amputee um, team. They have um, like a wheelchair team. And so they have all these different ways to include different members of the community of Brighton and Hove. Um And I, like, I think it's, like, the coolest thing. And the thing that I find that um, really reminded me of, or that I was reminded of when I was reading this article, is how well integrated um, Brighton in the community is with the, the top men's team and the top women's team. Like, there is, like, cohesive support there not only does the community support those teams and the people who are directly involved with those teams, you know, with the Brighton or Brighton in the community teams, but the first team players, both on the men's and women's side, participate, right? Like the coaches and all of those things are very much involved, you know, certainly not in the day to day, right? Like the coach right, of, yeah. the, of the EPL team doesn't like coach one of the other teams, but Um, There is this just sense of like cohesive support and I know that was built over time and so it would be really interesting if um, the authors would kind of come back 16 years later and say okay since the inception at this unnamed EPL club this is what has happened and this is how their programming has developed. Um, and I know it's not Brighton because Brighton was not in the Premier League uh, in 2004. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, anyway, I found that, like, super interesting. Um, was, and I was, think, sorry, I think that it gives you, like, a great call to arms. So, one of the things they say is that, you know, once they started getting lottery money from the government, they had to say the right things. But they didn't have a lot of examples of clubs doing the right things. So it's not that the clubs didn't want to. It's not that they don't want to be involved in their community, especially in England. Like your local club is very important to you, um, no matter their level of play, usually. And you become very attached to them. So 
I think that along with all of the things that we want our clubs to do and that, you know, we want to help out in so many different ways, we need to give them the education in order to say, okay, these are the things that you're saying, but how are you going to make that happen? And you've got to take off little bites. I think that's my biggest takeaway from this is that you've got to start somewhere. So you have all these grand ideas and you want to change the world. I want to change the world. But if I go out and I just try and change the world, I'm probably not going to get anything done because I'm running around like a crazy person. Like I just, I'm trying to hit everything as opposed to doing anything really well. And so nothing happens. But if you can start somewhere and like get that, it sounds, I don't know if it sounds bad. Uh, maybe it sounds typical. Get that low hanging fruit. So if you don't have a women's team, add a women's team. After you add a women's team and you have some staff for that, okay, well, what kind of youth teams do you have? And you don't have to add a full youth staff usually because if you're alternating days that you're using the gym or that people are working on ticketing or whatever it is, you may have to add only a couple more people. And once you've added those couple more people, all of a sudden you're introduced to this other group of people who let's say it's amputees. And they're like, you know what? We have enough people to play. We have, we have enough people for two sides because you may not have another side to start off with. So you've got to have two, you have enough people for two sides. Oh, all right. So that's not, I mean, you're not adding a full staff if you're just hosting those games once in a while and teaching them skills and letting people still be involved in soccer and in a sport that they enjoy playing. Like if you just start somewhere, that is your, your biggest investment is adding that second thing to your top tier team, whatever that is. If it's MLS, USL, EPL, whatever you're adding to your top tier that first time is your biggest investment. And after that, to build onto it, it's just less because you have so much more infrastructure already happening, so much more organization. You have so much more experience to make it go better. And I think that um, if we want the U.S. to be able to do the social include, like the social inclusion and recently because of the way that the the youth leagues have been restructured and the way that youth play has changed in the U.S. Um, this year in 2020, now is the time to start talking to these clubs and say, this is how it has worked other places so that our youth are supported across all socioeconomic backgrounds, across our whole region. This is how we get everyone to be included. Um, and I think if you don't provide those resources for the clubs, you're not going to get good results. And if you continuously get bad results, then people are going to stop trying. And then your community is upset at your club. And then suddenly you don't have a club anymore. And that's really sad. Yeah. And I think two things that really struck me, um, one is, is knowing your community and knowing what the needs are in your community. So, um, and then how you as a as an organization are equipped to meet those needs, you know, at the present moment, right? And so I know, you know, our local um, USL team, right? They, uh, you know, before the pandemic and the world is seemingly ending, but um, they would go into um, physical education classes in elementary schools and engage with kids in that way. And I think, yeah, you may, you know, I don't know what, like, the long-term, you know, social inclusion, you know, that's what we're talking about, right? But, like, I don't know what the long-term consequences are, and, you know, I haven't seen a study about it, certainly, but, 
Um, you know, but I think that's like a good first start, right? Of just engaging with the community in a new and different way that's different than asking someone to pay to, you know, come to the stadium or even like giving them free tickets. That means that parents have to have off work, right? And have transportation, right? You know, there's like so many things and so many costs and, and opportunity costs to coming to a game, right? But if you're meeting kids where they are, you know, they're already in school, hopefully, right? Like they already have to take physical education and you can engage with them that way. I think that's a really good first start. And then I think the other thing that I've been thinking about, and they mentioned, um, they mentioned this idea of the, oh shoot, what's it called? The like midnight basketball? Yeah. Yeah. Which I like hadn't heard of that. And it was interesting. Really? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Um, uh, but I was actually listening to um, another podcast, which uh, we will definitely kind of put up on our socials, um, that was talking about, uh, that mentioned this as well. Um, but I, I think there's something to be said. There's some, uh, not speaking clearly here. So sorry, friends. Um, there's something to be said for formal organized sport, right? So there's something to be said for like signing up for a team and you're showing up to practice. So I, I definitely like the formality of it. I also think there's something to be said for the benefits of just having kind of a free flowing informal structure. And I think sometimes the bar for creating like, Hey, we're just going to have a pickup game, you know, have your parents sign a waiver or whatever. So you can just like come and play. I think there's some benefit can be some benefit to that as well. And maybe that's an entry point into something more formal. So you can see the interest that there, um, that there is. Yeah. I think it's a great way to get kids engaged. So if you give them alternatives to getting in trouble, that's what kids need. And sometimes it's, I mean, it happens across the board, small towns, large cities, like everyone, if you have a safe and entertaining area to go do something safe and entertaining, the majority of people are going to pick safe and entertaining over illegal and dangerous. So um, like in my community, it was a coffee house that would let us play board games all night because we were in a really small town. Um, I think that Atlanta has put in a lot of those uh, small courts uh, with really good acoustics beside all of their subways or whatever their transportation is. Like they've put in a lot of those so that they're available to the community in general. And it's turned into they have pickup games on the regular and there's like an informal schedule and there are DJs who are involved. And if you can do that at midnight, as opposed to maybe getting chased by the police, I think that you're going to pick to go like hang out, listen to music with your friends and maybe play a game that you really enjoy. I think that those those ideas are great and those are t- alternatives are great. And it doesn't always have to be that you're in control of it and you're hosting it. But if you make it available, if if some of these parks in Pittsburgh, that's where we're at, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, if some of our parks where there are unused baseball diamonds had the availability of you know, lights and a, a soccer field to play on. Like kids would choose to go play there, I would hope. Um, but it has to be it has to be safe for them. It has to be well lit. 
Um, you have to let the community show that they care about the area. You can't make it this sterile, uh, exclusionary, gated community event because then you get graffiti and no one's playing soccer. So there's this balance that you have to to foster if you're going to get these natural alternatives and community engagement at an organic level. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the other things, you know, more from a research side, um, but something that I do think is really important and not necessarily in a research sense, but in a quality improvement sense, but I think it's really important to try for the organizations who are trying to do these different types of like community engagement type events or um, even programming that's more specifically focused on social inclusion um, it's really important to understand if these programs are working and not just like yeah we feel like it's working or like yeah we Actually, we had like a bad interaction with a kid who had a really bad day and the program is terrible and it's not working, right? Like anecdotes are helpful in some cases, but really unhelpful in others. And so I think that's one of the things that actually I I picked up from this article, even though it was very rambly, is this idea of it's really important to understand to truly understand if something's actually working, but in order to understand and to determine if something's working or not, you have to have a purpose to doing it, right? You have to have a thing of, we are doing this with the goal of X, Y, and Z. And we, you know, we want to promote social inclusion, but this is our definition of social inclusion. And social inclusion, yeah, it's like this abstract kind of like, mushy gushy thing but if you say like okay our kids you know in the example that they provided in in the article our kids have been involved with the law already uh, with the juvenile justice system so our goal is that to reduce the recidivism rate for those kids and you know after a year of participating or six months or whatever it is you know less than 30% or, you know, whatever are going, you know, but I think having those really concrete goals really helps us to understand, are these things actually working or aren't they working? And if they're not working, that's okay. Let's figure out how we can change things or adapt things. And the way we know how to change things or adapt things, we talk to the kids who are participating. We're talking, you know. Right. uh, I think that was something that was another thing that they really, they didn't hit home on, but they touched on and could have really expounded upon was one size is never going to fit all. And just because you say something doesn't mean that it's going to work. You have to go out and put forth the effort and learn about your community to determine what will work in your community and what will work in your community. So even though we live in a city and you would think our transportation was better, our transportation is awful. But if you look at the bus lines and figure out, like you could probably figure out four places that if you set up reoccurring events, you could get large swaths of communities. And people don't cross bridges here anyways. They stay on their side of the river. So if you just get in those four areas, people could stay on their side of the river and they could participate in these events that are a single bus trip away from them. And so 
I mean, a 10-year-old, I don't know, a 10-year-old can ride the bus by themselves. From I feel like if I was 10, I could have done it, but I don't know what the world is like today because I don't have kids, so I don't pay attention. But a, a, a child, a, a juvenile, maybe not a child, a juvenile could take the bus without their parents and then go to this event and maybe it's something that they can do after school and then their parent can come and pick them up maybe hopefully or someone else in their family can come and pick them up or a family friend can come and pick them up and see that they're involved in this you know event and how much fun that they're having and that they're not out getting in trouble and maybe there's a little bit of talk about hey let's talk about school or let's talk about what people are having problems with today because on today's news event there was another x y or z that was traumatic and yes you're going to lose some interest from the kids you got to keep those those sections of your event short but if you're doing it consistently they're going to get used to it and they're going to start participating more and it's something that they're going to become ingrained with and suddenly you have a juvenile who is engaged with your team and engaged with their community and knows all these other players and probably looks out for them on the street and if he sees someone who falls down he's going to pick him up instead of laughing at him maybe you have a parent or an aunt or a family friend who sees their child being engaged and sees someone helping them have very hard conversations that they don't know how to have and so they have a lot more respect for those coaches or those players or you know those workers for the team like all of a sudden you're building another community around that event and it can be such a game changer for people yeah no absolutely i agree 100 percent. liz what was your main takeaway from this paper my main takeaway was that uh i need to go to the SEAL Army more and say, where do you see a need that the SEAL Army could fulfill? So we have teachers um, in the SEAL Army who have previously said, I have a family, like I'll approach the parents, and if I have a family who can go, can we get tickets for them? And so the SEAL Army has gotten tickets for this family once we've you know, confirmed that they have the means and capability of going to the game. Um, we have people who've worked with the Boys and Girls Club, and we have said we'll make tickets available for the big sister, big brothers, and their little siblings to go. So I need to listen more when the Steel Army says, I know where we can make a difference, and encourage the rest of us to participate in making that difference. And then tweet about it, tag the Riverhounds, and hopefully they see it as something where they can build on our inroads. So we could be a starting point and the the Riverhounds don't have to be where we start with this change. What yeah. was your biggest takeaway? Uh, real quickly, as an explanatory comma, um, the SEAL Army is the supporters group for our local soccer team, which is the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. That's true. Okay. Um, I think my biggest takeaway, well, from a research perspective, is really the importance of clarity of writing and taking your reader on the journey with you. Um, So that was kind of from like a writing research perspective. Um, But I think I think the big thing for me is just um, thinking about how to be flexible and how to be creative in really trying to match up the needs of the community, the needs of the kids in my neighborhood um, with uh, the capacity and, and the skills that myself or local organizations have. And so I think really thinking 
outside the box and so is it something that's more informal or is it something like going to my local government which would be borough council and saying hey we need to provide like a safe you know like a open clean well-lit space for kids to play basketball or you know to like get out especially during the summer right like to get out some of the energy and also to just be able to have something to do um so yeah so that's what i've been thinking about um a lot and and what this article has uh, prompted for me can i leave you with a very random side note please do you know can you guess how i know about midnight basketball which i can assure you didn't take part in my hometown because i grew up in the middle of nowhere uh my do you actually want me to guess oh yeah or? please i think okay. this is fun uh my guess is you had to read about it for one of your classes in law school it was a law and order episode <laughs> that's so funny oh so anyways my gosh. if anyone else knows about midnight basketball close. you were close it didn't have to do with the law if anyone else knows about midnight basketball because someone got murdered and they turned off the lights on law and order me too man me too no interesting well that's fun they proved how important they were and they got the lights turned back on and everybody was really happy laurel and it was delightful i'm so glad to hear that <laughs> all right liz anything else for this episode of soccer better no i thought this was this turned out way better than i expected i thought it was gonna be lots of me <laughs> sarcasming so you know what you bring out the best in me Aww. you got yep. final final parting thoughts Nope. I think we should, you know, soccer better, Black Lives Matter, wear your mask. I think that covers most of the bases. Those are some really important things, guys. Do all of those. Repeat. Repeat. Rinse and repeat. Rinse Don't and repeat. Rinse. Just repeat. You should wash your mask. Please rinse. Wa- yes. yes. Rinse and wash your mask. Rinse, wash your hands. Yeah. So rinse and repeat, guys. Rinse and repeat. And repeat. All right, Liz, I'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Thank you to our host, The Beautiful Game Network. BGN covers teams across the MLS, USL Championship, and USL League One. Check out podcasts and written content at bgn.fm. You can follow us on Twitter at BGN Soccer Better. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Otherwise, let us know what you think about today's show and be sure to share it with a friend. Thanks, everyone. Remember, you can always soccer better. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to USL, MLS, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Tired of the same old uniforms and cookie-cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult, or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your new custom kit today at IcarusFC.com.